Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi, Nasser Mashni and Robert Martin. for tuning in to another edition of Australia's only radio program that is totally dedicated to the Palestinian cause in English language. I would like to welcome our listeners on the AM dial and those who will join us later on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. In this week's edition, we're going to talk about Nexa, the occupation of West Bank and Gaza Strip. In addition to the Egyptian lands, Sinai, and the Syrian land, Golan Heights, in 1967, and uh, we're living the 50th anniversary of Nexa. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Nasser and Robert. Hi, Yusuf. Good morning, everybody, and good morning, you two. Nasser, uh, we are um, living the uh, 50th anniversary of the occupation of uh, West Bank, uh, including Jerusalem and uh, Gaza, uh, of Gaza, course, yeah. uh, Sina of Egypt and Golan Heights of uh, Syria, and what we call the Nexa, which is the Arabic word for setback. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is going to be our first topic to discuss this week. Of course. So we're half a century of occupation. And so on June 5, we saw um, the 50th uh, commemoration of the occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. And in those 50 years for Palestinians, they we remember it as the second stage of the Nakba. As we know, the Nakba is continuing now and Israel has conquered all of historic Palestine. In the, in the 69 years since Nakba, 70 years since 1947, 69 years since 1948, we've seen the incremental expansion of Zionist Israel. And Israel, like a bulldozer, has ploughed through Palestine, taking it bit by bit. And the main reason we've not had peace is that Israel has never satisfied its hunger for Palestine and continually craves more. Further, it's always found ways to blame Palestinians. For not uh, achieving... Not achieving peace. peace. Whilst they continually eat Palestine away, Mm. bulldoze homes... uh, Block the return of... Block the return of uh, refugees, refugees. denying them their inalienable right. Um, they keep stealing more and more of Palestine. Israel wants all of the land, but none of its indigenous people, which are the Palestinians, as we know. There's still only one piece left. There's a really important piece, and this is where Zionism has taken a very ugly turn. It's that, that's the religious Zionism. And the heart of Jerusalem is not yet totally in Israel's hands. And they're searching for an opportune moment to grab it. And as we know, um, uh, we've spoken, we need to speak about Silwan and what they're doing underneath underneath um, Al-Haram, um, excavating, uh, looking for the uh, ancient alleged city of, uh, of David. It's also uh, worth uh, saying that uh, the renowned uh, Israeli historians 
uh, couldn't find any archaeologists have found nothing. Uh, and you can imagine what the world would have heard had oh. they found anything to link the shrine or to, let's say, the Holy Mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, to uh, the, oh, the Jewish ancient, ancient king of David's mm. uh, temple. And as look, the, the, there's a, a full show in this. Palestinians in Silwan, which is a, a, a very close suburb to the center of um, Jerusalem, they're excavating under those homes. There's cracks in their rooms. You know, f- uh, uh, foundations are falling on their houses, mm. uh, potholes opening up in roads as they c- continually search. Anyway, coming back, the, the Palestinians have endured the second ugly face of Zionism. The first was a secular Zionism, which stripped Palestine, uh, the Palestinians of 78% of Palestine. And these were the very first wave of um, European Jews that came over, and many of them were secular, didn't believe in God, but believed God gave them the land. Since the 70s and post-1967, where we saw the, the, the occupation of the remaining parts of Palestine, West Bank, the ugly religious Zionism has taken hold. And they came and stole the, the, the balance of the 22% and have moved 600-plus thousand uh, Jews into what should be Palestine based on a two-state solution. And one of the things that we, we question ourselves and we say, if religious Zionism takes control of the whole land, and will it turn then against secular Zionism? And what happens then to the alleged rule of law when um, Jewish religious law, Halakha, takes over as the rule of law for the country? If and when that happens, what happens to that alleged democracy in Israel? And that'll evaporate and it'll become true to its name, a Jewish state. And then, not unlike all of those countries that neighbor Israel, that it's so easy to condemn, a theocracy, where the rights are solely given sacred, to, sacred to, to those that follow the right religion. I think uh, since its inception, Israel has uh, given us uh, many evidence Uh, in violation of human rights, international law, its own democracy, its own laws. Uh, and uh, if the continuation of the Zionist project uh, turns into a theology over democracy, I can see more and more violations of their own laws against their own people, mm-hmm. not, not only against the Palestinians. And um, look, well, I think we're, we're sounding very pessimistic, but the reality for Palestinians on the ground is it's hard not to be pessimistic. Mm. I mean, we wake up with hope and expectation for a better future, but when we look at the facts on the ground, the negative vision that we see is, you know, self-propelling. And I mean, those words could seem pessimistic and negative, but if any religion takes a political power, there's no room for democracy or equality under law or respect for others. And if that seems far-fetched, I mean, we've got the, the Deputy Speaker of the Knesset, His name is Betzalel Smotrich of the Jewish Home Party. And last week, he dubbed his political agenda, he called it the subjugation plan. And under his plan, and this is a quote from his speech to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, the Palestinians will be given three choices. One, to leave the country. Two, to live in Israel with the status of resident alien, because according to Jewish law, there must always be some inferiority or to resist. And then the Israeli Defense Force will know what to do. Now this Smotrik was inspired by the Midrash on the book of Joshua where God commands the ancient Israelites to annihilate the indigenous people of Jericho. This is Smotrik's final solution. And this is the face of religious Zionism and it's getting uglier and scarier by the day. And the government of Israel has been sure to keep it hidden from, from Western Christians and even from Western Jews. But it's slowly becoming more and more conspicuous to a growing number of people. The unification of Jerusalem is a farce. It's true that Israel conquered East Jerusalem, but it's not been able to unify it. 
The Palestinian people refuse to accept it. It is occupied territory. Most Israeli people won't even set foot in East Jerusalem. Taxi, Jewish taxis won't go there. Israeli ambulances won't go there without a military escort. In spite of Israel's Judaization of Jerusalem, it's still a Palestinian city. That's the cold, hard reality. And I will just pose a question, Nasser, and if we could answer it quickly so that we move on. Uh, how come the media is very tolerant towards the opinions of such lunatics when it comes uh, from Israel, when they are when they are very intolerant towards the lunatics of Muslims? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the cold hard reality is the biggest thing is you don't want to be anti-Semitic. If you say anything contrary to Israel, immediately you're going to be slammed as anti-Semitic. We've got our prime, former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, now calling for Muslim internment camps. During the week, as you know, we had a uh, terrible incident in Brighton where um, pr- a former Prime Minister Abbott said um, Islamism has killed people, but um, Islamophobia has never has. I mean, the absurdity, just after two people were murdered in Portland defending a, a young girl who was breaking her fast from mm. some rabid white-wing fascist, um, he said uh, uh, Islamophobia has never killed anybody. He's what about now, the guy from Norway? The guy, Anders Breivik, yeah, yeah. The, the, he's calling now for Muslim internment camps. Now, if you say anything against lunatic religious Zionism, and if you look at the Knesset today, a huge chunk of the ruling Likud party's, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, these are all right-wing, I mean, fascist. They're, they're, proud, they're, fascist and proud. And, like, you know, they would, they, if they had an opportunity, they would, might even find a solution. The education us. minister, the cultural minister. Naftali Bennett, and, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Nasser, I want, um, before we continue, to stop uh, on the day before Naxa and to try to imagine Palestine the day before Naxa mm-hmm. so that we can um, imagine what happened afterwards. Uh, we're talking about uh, from 1948 to 1967, so that's 19 years of statelessness of the uh, three quarters of a million Palestinians and their uh, families who fled, uh, who were kicked out of their, <coughs> excuse me, homes, villages, and towns in 48, and the build-up of hope to return. And the emotions, uh, and uh, I can uh, tell you that uh, my father, for example, when he went to school in the 50s, the school uh, was in a refugee camp. And the beginning of the day starts with the national anthem of Palestine and also starts with the national anthem of Algeria. And that's something probably some people might find a little bit strange. Why would the Palestinian schools in the 50s and 60s play the national anthem of Algeria every morning? And there is a symbolic pan-Arabism because Algeria was in the middle of its own independence after more than 130 years of French colonization. Organization. And they show the an occupation and statelessness. And they saw in the Algerian struggle for freedom and independence something that gave them momentum and they would, you know, play a, pa- a parallel struggle, parallel struggle. Yeah. And my uncle told me last year that uh, even sometimes they would uh, collect donations. So uh, Palestinian refugees who have nothing, who live on aid, they call they collect donations to send to Algeria in solidarity with their struggle. And they did that. And my uncle, when he was young, and that's when, in, in, in 1961, 
he told me that he went back home and he told his mother, my grandmother, that uh, the teacher is saying that we have to collect donations for Algeria. And she gave him a, blank, a blanket the next day. That, that, that's one thing that she could afford. Well, I mean, so. So the Palestinians, yes, do you want to say something? No, I was going to say, I mean, I remember you were talking about our father, but, you know, uh, our father's Yusuf, uh, Ben Bella was, you know... Uh, Ahmed Ben Bella, yeah, uh, the Algerian... Uh, Algerian president and yeah. revolutionary and leader of the struggle against French uh, occupation and colonialism. You know, these, these were heroes for the Palestinian people. Mm. You know, they, they shared the parallels between a foreign occupying force. And, you know, and just to go off topic for a moment, when, when the Algerians left... Uh, when the French left Algeria, there were many Algerians that were on the French side. Yes. Many turncoats. They called them Al-Harakiyin, yeah, yeah. their local names. And th- they couldn't stay in Algeria after uh, the after the French left. So they, the, they left with the French, went back to Mother, but mother, how, mother France. But how did France oh, Of course. Treat so them. they went back and, you know, De Gaulle, and they went, we're here, De Gaulle. And he went, what are you doing here? Sorry, put not them in, we're not interested. Put them in slums and whatever. The same with the Tunisians and the Moroccans. Hmm. And these North African former French colonies that you know never had the opportunity. Who fought, to, for, uh, fought for the French. Hmm. Fought in World War II. Never had the opportunity or were given the assistance to assimilate. <laughs> became now this huge problem uh, three and four generations hmm. later where they're, they're not accepted uh, into, into uh, French mainstream society. And they you know, are, are at the fringes of extremism and have now, you know, Sadly, taken to that ultimate, you know, uh, mm. ISIS path. So this is this is the atmosphere. There was a rise of pan-Arabism, and there was a project by Jamal Abdel Nasser, uh, a successful project, especially after the f- 1956 uh, Suez Canal crisis and the nationalization of the Suez Canal and the victory uh, of Egypt and the Arabs afterwards, and how Jamal Abdel Nasser supported the struggle of Algeria. And uh, it's, it, it might also be worth saying that the national anthem we're talking about of Algeria is composed by an Egyptian. So uh, Mohammed Fawzi uh, composed the lyrics written by an Algerian poem poet and the Palestinians would sing it in their uh, schools every morning. Uh, so we should play it today. We will play it today. Yes, it's a great piece of music and it's very, very emotional and it, it has so much meaning to me myself. So uh, the Palestinians started building up the hope for 19 years and they saw it happening and happening and the rise. Of course, you had uh, the, the media propaganda back then of the, in the 50s and 60s which tries to, multipl- uh, to, to multiply any form of victory times 100 yeah. so you feel that it, we are not only uh, ready to go back and return but also to have the united arab states from uh, the gulf to morocco but we got to remember there, there was a period of time there yusuf you know with abdel nasser where you know he rebuilt egypt you know mm. gave land back to the peasants took of course there land, was a like, successful yeah, project massive socialist uh, enterprise there but he rebuilt the army and hmm. that army was substantial. And the United Arab Republic when, you know, he joined. The unity with yeah, Syria. With Syria. And so there was, you know, a real, reality, a real, a real, real optimism. It was yeah. real optimism. And Palestinians subscribed to that. Uh, and they started giving their children Belief. Jamal. Uh, they're naming their children uh, Jamal and Nasser. And now, we have, now we're <laughs> talking to one of them. <laughs> we're talking to one of them. My uncle was also named after Jamal. His name is Jamal. Yeah. And so you have this kind of rise of pan-Arabism. But on the other hand... Uh, you have the uh, uh, 
the other, let's say, Arab project, which was the monarchies of the Gulf, mm -hmm. Jordan and Morocco, and the other revolutionary regimes that didn't fall under the umbrella of Jamal Abdel Nasser mm -hmm. that was in Iraq and uh, later on in Libya. So the rise of ideologies and the rise of, I would say, the left ideology, the socialist, the communist, and that's even before the birth of Fatah and PFLP and DFLP mm -hmm. because they were born in 65 onwards. Yeah. Although the roots of Fatah goes back to the 50s, but we're talking about the general atmosphere in the Arab world. However, the central, the central issue of the whole Arabs, the Arab world was Palestine. And you have to support Palestine in your media if you want to really uh, sell anything, not sell in its commercial uh, uh, meaning, but yeah. to introduce yourself as a leader, as a, a, a righteously guided, uh, I would say, uh, uh, politician. And so, so the atmosphere was strong. And um, then came the, the war. Of course, the war, uh, we, we can talk about it for hours and hours, but uh, I, I think the result of the war within six days, then you realize that this is um, uh, one of the biggest defeats. And some historians refer to 1967 of a bigger defeat than 1948 because of the hope factor. The hope factor, yeah. Because Nakba took, mm -hmm. took us by surprise. Yeah. In, within a year, we lost 78% of Palestine, and that is a huge catastrophe. But there was no expectation. We didn't see that happening, and then it happened. Whereas in Naksa, you saw the opposite happening, the extreme opposite happening, and then within six days, you've, everything fell apart, and then starts another chapter and a turning point for Palestinians and Arabs, and that is still affecting and shaping our present today. Listening to Palestine remembered on 855 AM, and uh, this was the national anthem of Algeria. Before the break, uh, we were uh, talking about uh, uh, the day before uh, uh, Naxa and the atmosphere and the whole the hope build up that uh, took place over 19 years, and then the collapse of that and the destruction of hope. However. Um, maybe another chapter was open in terms of uh, how we took the, how we became the masters of our own destiny. Absolutely. Instead so, of relying on um, others uh, to decide uh, the future of Palestine. So the you know the Palestinian liberation movement, you know, before the PLO and uh, after Fatah etc., the Palestinians took started to take control, and we saw that through you know the operations that existed um, throughout the Arab world and much of the other world. <coughs> Um, but the, w the Palestinians took control, and that, in the first instance, was the Fedayeen Ayin through um, uh, incursions, increased incursions through from Jordan, um, and then the constitution of the PLO and the, the PNC, and um, ultimately, Palestinians and led by Yasser Arafat Abu Amr, um, we we stood up and said, "We're in charge of our future and our destiny. No longer will we rely 
upon the 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 shallow words hmm. of the um, ruling elites across the Arab world. It's time for us to take our, take control. Um, I remember uh, Nasser and Robert. I uh, was uh, uh, I gave a lecture uh, two months ago on Mahmoud Darwish and the. Um, parity of Mahmoud Darwish and Yasser Arafat, how Yasser Arafat led the Palestinian political identity in the 70s, 80s and 90s and Mahmoud Darwish shaped the Palestinian, um, I would say, intellectual identity in the modern history after Naksa. And um, this is why um, I would say the legacy of Mahmoud Darwish, and I'm hope, uh, of, of course we will talk more about Mahmoud Darwish, the Palestinian uh, poet. Uh, we have spoken about him uh, uh, several times on this show, but we will definitely revisit Mahmoud Darwish. This is why the legacy of Mahmoud Darwish is so important and is bigger than just uh, a poet of one nation. Yeah. So um, one of the things I think maybe we can we'll put that that to aside for now. Interestingly, during the week on Wednesday, um, Amnesty International uh, released a, um, a press release, and this is the first time uh, that Amnesty has come out this strong. Mm. And this is on the anniversary of the 50th uh, year of the occupation of, um, of the West Bank uh, and um, Gaza and East Jerusalem. And um, so I'll just read just, just a part of this, and we'll put this on, uh, on the web link um, with our podcast. But the, the title is Australia must ban Israeli settlement products to help end half a century of violations against Palestinians. The Australian government and the international community must ban the import of all goods produced in illegal Israeli settlements and put an end to the multi-million dollar profits that have fueled mass human rights violations against Palestinians, said Amnesty International today. To mark the 50th anniversary of Israel's occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, the organisation is launching a new campaign calling on states across the world to prohibit settlement goods from their markets and to prevent their companies from operating in settlements or trading in settlement goods. Amnesty International is calling on the Australian government to ban the import of goods from illegal settlements, said Michael Hayworth, campaigns manager at Amnesty International Australia. The illegal settlements are sustained by profits off the back of unlawfully appropriated Palestinian resources, including land, water and minerals. Australia should publicly clarify whether any existing imports have come from illegal settlements and commit to prohibiting this in the future. Now, this is a very, very mm, strong Very statement. powerful. Yeah. And it's actually not stronger uh, than what it should be because reality on ground is very ugly and we have to take measures to stop the ugliness, especially five decades later. Now, Robert, I want to ask you um, to help us explain to uh, Australians who have no previous knowledge of the uh, the Palestinian issue or the, even the word settlements, how can we um, simplify uh, to a, a listener who listens to us for the first time today? So, so just before we go to that point, and because Rob's just most recent most recent returnee from Palestine, he'll talk about settlements. We should just make the point that this is the 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 biggest call from the biggest. Uh, human rights organization, non-for-profit NGO in the world mm. for a limited BTS, but a BDS anyway. A boycott uh, movement, yeah. of course. Are so we going to have the same issues that we'd had with uh, the United Nations report? Is there going to be a huge outcry Let's by all the governments? And 
I, I, I would say no, because uh, the, uh, the monopoly or the power of Israel over UN bodies is bigger than it is on, let's say, independent organizations. So let's hope no. So, Robert, now, um, how can we explain to uh, a listener what it actually means to cross by or to see a settlement? What is a settlement? You've been to Palestine. You've seen occupation yourself. I haven't been to Palestine, by the way, but you have seen Palestine. Um, well, they're an absolute, just explain it to they're, us. They're an eyesore, and they're not like small villages like a lot of people think. They're like small, uh, big suburbs built, uh, going very, very high up, built on Palestinian land. So you can be staying in a village such as Berlin, uh, look over the horrific, hideous wall, and see and actually hear the digging of the new areas being built. The Palestinians can't go there. They can see them from a distance, but they're not allowed to cross. They have different roads. Uh, they have the full running water. The Palestinians don't. So I mean, it's a blatant stealing of, of land, and these poor Palestinian people sitting and looking from the distance—it's a—you uh, mm-hmm. know—it's horrific, and it's about time that uh, you know Amnesty International actually say this. So we should say on, on the issue of water, we should just say the the average settler in the West Bank, and this is quite an arid part of the of the world. The average settler receives 250 liters per person per day. The World Health Organization says that in for. Uh, a person to have adequate water, they need a hundred liters. At least a hundred liters per day. Yeah, liters per person per day. Palestinians in the same West Bank, neighbouring villages where these settlements are built on villages stolen land, they average fifty liters per day. And this is this is in the West Bank. Let alone in Gaza, where ninety-seven percent of the water is saline and undrinkable, which is why there's such a high incidence of child and adult uh, kidney issues. I can barely think of anything, any aspect of life that is not affected by occupation. Uh, freedom of movement, of course, you're talking about checkpoints and you're talking about entry and exit. Uh, food, water, we've spoken about that. Education, health, employment, economy, security, military raids, imprisonment, killing, injury, and the list goes on and on. It goes on and on. You cannot actually imagine a normal life under occupation, not only under occupation, under the longest occupation in modern history. Yusuf, it's not just life, it's death too, yeah? We've got to remember that when, when the Palestinians are killed mm. uh, indiscriminately uh, while they're violent, uh, in, uh, violently by the Israelis while they're protesting against the occupation, often the bodies are held for weeks, months, years on end. Mm. Um, but interestingly, one of the good things about this um, Amnesty International report is they've put together a facts and figures sheet, Robert. Yeah, and on, we'll put this uh, on a link as well so everyone can have a look at it. But uh, if we pick out a few of them, that 60% of the West Bank is under full Israeli control. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. They can't go in or out. They can't do, do anything like that. There's more than 100,000 hectares of Palestinian lands appropriated for settlement use. 50,000 homes and structures have been demolished by Israel. Now, this is I've seen this. It's a horrible thing. The families don't get very long uh, to be told that their house is going to get demolished. Also, if somebody Palestinian has done something that's criminal, they'll actually demolish the families' homes as well, mm. sometimes the cousins. Uh, there's 4.9 million Palestinians face daily restrictions of their movement. I mean, that is a horrific number. 600,000-plus Israeli settlement, settlers live on the occupied Palestinian lands. Up to 99% of cases heard by Israeli military courts in the West Bank ended in conviction. Mm, the highest conviction rate probably in the world. No, Other no, than China? No, no, no. Yeah, we, we're going to be very clear. Michael Danby, uh, Australia's own minister for Israel, condemned 
China for a 99% conviction rate and said that we can't have an extradition treaty with China that has a 99% conviction rate. That's just remarkable and completely unjust and unlawful. But Let's uh, wait for him uh, <laughs> to talk about Israel. Yeah. yeah, I wonder what his response would be. Uh, and just covering a few other of the facts and figures, since 1987, more than 10,200 Palestinians have been killed. Killed. Mm. We don't often we don't hear anything about that. Often unlaw- unlawfully. In the same period, more than 1,400 Israelis have been killed by Palestinians. On average, Israeli consumption of water, and NASA touched on this before, is at least four times that of the Palestinians. And People is, wonder why the Palestinians are getting upset here. And, and uh, there, there were 800,000 Palestinians imprisoned since uh, the occupation. And that is one. Uh, that is four in ten men of West Bank. Uh, and when we say West Bank, we're talking about the same uh, uh, square kilometers of Melbourne, 5,800 square kilometers. That's Melbourne and its suburbs. Uh, so can you imagine fitting settlements inside Melbourne and, and its suburbs? 400 and checkpoints and a wall and Israeli-only roads and, you know... And 600,000 bad neighbors. Can you how imagine? dare you speak out about it as well? Well, that's, you know, you'd be this, this is how we can visualize occupation. I think we're coming towards the end of the, the show. We would we, be remiss of us not to mention also this is the 10-year anniversary of the blockade of Gaza. Almost 2 million people, a million of them children under 18 years of age, have had their, their daily calorific intake calculated and only that much water going in, uh, only that much food going in. And listeners, um, I'm very excited to announce that we'll, Yusuf uh, will be giving a talk uh, on Jerusalem and the 50 years of de-Arabization of the Holy City, Wednesday the 28th of June, 6.30pm at the Multicultural Hub, Blue Room, 506 Elizabeth Street in Melbourne. Um, we'll put those details up on our podcast. 28th of June, lock it in your diaries, Wednesday 28th June, 6.30pm. Thanks, Nasser and Robert, and thanks to all our listeners. That's it for this uh, week, and next week will be the Radiothon. Um, until uh, we meet, uh, have a great time and salam. Be prepared for donations for the Radio Thorn episode next week. Bye bye.